Good evening. My name is David, and I'm an alcoholic. What a pleasure to be in the Delta country. Never seen this country before. In fact, today we landed in Memphis, and, and Tom and Susan picked us up. Just very kind of you. Thank you so much for your hospitality. And we just moved south. I uh, ate for the first time at uh, Abe's. And what's the name of the town, Tom? Clarksdale. And I ate hot tamales for the first time in my life. Yeah, I'm telling you now. I tell you, I have been indoctrinated into the Delta. In fact, Tom and Susan said if I would eat those, no, they didn't say that, but you know, if I'd eat those things, I'd be a part, part of the, the place, you know. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to thank Liz. Uh, everyone has been so wonderful, Liz, and thank you as chair of this committee and the team and the committee. Thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to have as much hospitality. I have never, ever, in fact, Tom, I, you're going to hear him, uh, uh, Sunday morning. He's my grand sponsor, about 45 minutes from me in North Carolina. And he got me into all this about five years ago this month, Tom, if you recall. You called me and said, well, can we go to Wichita Falls, Texas together? And, uh, but I've never had the, the detail. I mean, uh, I mean, seriously, Liz sent me a list of uh, who would be meeting me. And it was really, I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, it's really good because sometimes you get there and you just don't know exactly if somebody is meeting you. <laughs> it's, 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 it's nice to have that much detail. I mean, they t- said how tall Tom was and, and, and something about, so, you know, I had it down pat. Then I get to meet Tom, like his glasses, the whole thing. It's really great. It's a real privilege, but thank you so much, and, and Glenn and Becky and the whole gang for dinner tonight. I mean, we had a ball over there with catfish. I had those good catfish. I want to talk to you about a disease I have. I want to tell you that, that when I was 39 years, 11 months, and 3 weeks old, I didn't know I had a disease. In fact, you know, when I went to treatment, it's kind of a family intervention. You know, they were a little concerned about my activity and lack thereof. And and uh, and I think what happened is I got to the treatment center. I didn't have the disease of alcoholism. I think I caught it about the third day there. It was I, I was going down the hall. You know, it's like a room 204. There's a guy there had a bad case. I think that was who gave it to me. But I want to talk about this disease. And I really want to say it because I was in treatment for a month, a month, yeah, 28 days. And then I went to a halfway house, worked with the same counselor, Claire, just a wonderful lady. And on the way out, I had my bags in hand. I'm ready to go and come home, you know, that big day and scared to death. And she said, David, she said, if you ever go back out and drink again, it's going to be because you're going to think that you just need to get good and get better and you'll be okay. She said, it will be because you don't understand that you've got a disease. She said, you just think you need to be better. You know how you, all my life I had to do a little, you know, work a little harder, work a little less, uh, gain a little weight, lose a little weight, or wear this, don't wear that. You know, say this, don't say that. All my life. And she said, you just think you got to get good. And she said, it's not about being good. It's about understanding that you're sick. And I want to tell you that when I understand that I have a disease, you know what happens to me when I really accept that? I'm powerless. I really am. I know that this thing called alcohol beat me. But when I don't grasp the concept of my disease, when I only understand that I just need to get better, <laughs> do you know what I am? I'm very powerful. I got it all figured out. And I have to really watch that. And she said, what would you do if you broke both your legs and it put you in a body cast up to your armpits? She was a pretty graphic lady. And I said, I guess I'd lay in bed. She said, how long? I said, seven weeks till they cut the cast off. And <laughs> she said, well, if you would lay in bed for seven weeks to heal from two broken legs, will you give yourself time when you get home? Will you get a sponsor? Will you go to meetings? Will you get a big book? Will you work the 12 steps? Will you really do the deal? If you will do that, you'll be okay, David. And that really stuck with me. Now, I told her, I said, I understand. I've got a disease. But you know what? When I walked out of that, that treatment center, <laughs> I really didn't believe that. <laughs> you know, I just, I just need to get home. <laughs> I can get this thing straightened out. It's, it's right here in page 62. I want to read this to you because I think it's, it's a wonderful thing. It, it defies my disease for me. It says selfishness, self-centeredness. That we think is the root of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes uh, they hurt us seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that at some time in our past we have made decisions based on self that have come back later to put us in a position to be hurt. Hundreds of forms of fear, hundreds of forms of, of, of self-delusion, hundreds of forms of self-seeking and self-pity. That, to me, really is my disease. And I want to talk about that tonight because I have a sponsor. In fact, uh, Tom's sponsor is my sponsor. His name is Keith L. And, and over the last 10 years, he has really worked with me and, and helped me on this whole thing of the disease and how it is affecting my life and how has it affected it. And what could I do in terms of staying in this treatment program or staying in this recovery program called AA and working and doing the deal? 
it's like this. The first memory I have, I think it was back when I was five or six, I'm not sure, but it was, uh, we were going to a, uh, my aunt's house. And my brother Larry, he was 16 months, three days older than me. He was in the back seat with me. He still is. Nothing's changed there. He's still that old. And we, we, we were going to my, my aunt, I think it was Aunt Sue's, I'm not sure, but my mom and dad were in the front seat and my mother turned to me and pointed right in my face and she said, now when we get to Sue's, don't you ask for anything, not even a drop of water. She said, because when we leave there, I don't want Sue to say, Letha and Claudia, that's my mom and my dad, uh, had be- uh, we'd love to have them come back, but those mean young'uns had better never come again. And I remember the next thought I had, I was sitting on a wooden bench. It was kind of like a bench out in the hallway, and all the adults were in the, in the living room, and they were just having a good time laughing. And I was sitting out there, my brother was on my right, and I was sitting there on my hands. I don't know if you ever did that, but I put my hands under my thighs because I didn't want to touch anything. And I don't know if I started it that day, but here's what I remember that day. is when any other person, mainly adults, would come within 10 feet of me, walking up down the hall. You know what I'd start doing? I'd go like this. I'd smile, and I'd start doing this with my head. And I'm not even Japanese. You know what I'm saying? But I'd... And these words would start to come out. I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. I'm, fi- I'm fine. How are you? Well, I'm fine. Well, I'm fine. How, how are you? I'm fine. I call it fine. And I perfected fine into a fine art. And you know what I did? I'd ask people, are you okay? And you know what I was really asking? I didn't care how they were. I was asking, am I okay with you? Do, do, do you want me to, do you want me to be here? And if you had a frown, you had a very difficult time leaving my presence. Because you know what I thought? If you left with a frown or if you weren't happy when you left, it was about me. And my job was to get you happy. Hey, well, let me ask you one more question. I mean, you just couldn't leave me. I had to get, you know, are you da 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 You know, here I'd go. Had to be that way. Make sure those people are happy. And you know, I got back in the car when we left Aunt Sue's that day. And the first question I asked my mother is, Mom, how did I do? Is she going to want me back? How did I do? I don't know if you know that fear. Hundreds of forms of fear. Hundreds of forms. It's like this. It's like God called all the, the eight-year-olds in the world together and he put them in a big stadium. I was eight at the time, so I went. And I got into the stadium and God stood up and said, now I'm going to tell you about how to grow up and I'm going to tell you about uh, uh, going through puberty and how to date and how to get out of school and get a job and be responsible, have uh, uh, children and, and just have a happy life. And just about the time he started, I said, excuse me, I got to go to the bathroom. And I went to the bathroom. And when I got back from the bathroom, God was saying, and now you know all the secrets there is to know about living. And on the way out the stadium, people would say, you know about growing up, David, don't you? And I said, of course I do. I didn't know. I had not a clue. You know about puberty, don't you, David? I said, of course I do. I didn't know. I thought I had cancer until my big brother figured filled me in on the deal. I had no clue what was happening to me. You know about dating girls, don't you, David? I said, of course I do. I didn't know. In fact, you know, I would call a girl and I, I would get so frightened, hundreds of forms of fear, that I'd get paralyzed and I couldn't speak. And then I, I finally I'd just hang up and I knew she knew it was me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Hadn't said a word, but I knew she knew it was me. Hundreds of forms of fear. And it's, it's like this. A guy in Dallas, Texas in 1988, I was down in a meeting and he said, alcoholism is a disease characterized by pyramiding thoughts. Now, I want to I wanna talk about that for a second. So I went up and talked to Joe. And I said, tell me about that. And here's what happens to me. I can be sitting in my office at 10 o'clock on Tuesday morning. I'm fine. Good morning. I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. And then my boss walks by. And I go, good morning, Don. How's it going? And he doesn't speak. Don, he doesn't speak. Now, here's what happens to me. It starts right here in the center of my brain. It's an upside-down pyramid just like this. First thought, wonder why he didn't speak. Second thought, I bet he's upset with me. That was that report I gave him yesterday. He didn't like that report. No, it was that meeting last Friday. I was in that meeting and I said, I shouldn't have said what I said. I mean, I probably hacked him off and he's thought about it over the weekend and he's going to fire me. I'm sitting at my desk, 10 o'clock, I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. 10 one, I'm fired. I hadn't even left my desk. And I, I don't know if you do that, but it's like I build a pyramid off the top of the pyramid. I'll go, well, if he fires me, I got to go to an unemployment office. I'm sitting at my desk. And I'm going, and so I start another people and I say, but if I go down there and fill out the forms, what if they won't give me an unemployment check? 10 o'clock, I'm fine. Hi, you, I'm fine. 10 one, I'm fired. 10 one and a half. I can't get an unemployment check and can't feed my family. <laughs> Nobody's walked in. Nobody's called. Now here's the funny part of the story. If they come in during the process of that thinking and they say, good morning, David, how you doing? You know what I'll say? I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> it's an amazing process. It's like this. This happened to me one morning. I was in recovery about a year, and I had a, a little pimple on my calf right here. I scratched that thing. It was in the morning, early. Scratched it a couple more times. Got in the shower. Showered. Got out. Putting on my socks. I looked down at this pimple. Now it's got this little red circle around it. 
And here it goes. Here goes the thinking. First thought, I wonder what that is. It looks like it's infected. Well, it looks like it's got a knot in it. It wasn't there last night. I wonder if it's a tumor. Well, if it's a tumor, they're going to take my leg off right there. And if they take my leg off right there, i got to get a prosthesis. Sitting there at 7 o'clock on a Tuesday morning worried about a prosthesis. I'm not kidding you, folks. This happened to me. I thought I only did it with bad things, but I was in the shower about seven years ago, and I was humming a country and western tune. I don't know why, because my life was going along pretty well at that time. But I was humming this country and western tune, and I get out of the shower, dry off, and I'm over, I'm shaving at the sink, and the next conscious thought I had was, where am I going to get a tour bus? A tour bus. Some of you have been there. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> yeah, let me take you back. Let me take you back. <laughs> I said, I don't need a tour bus. I said, where did that come from? And I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking. And here's what happened. I'm humming this country western tune. First thought, hmm, that sounds pretty good. I bet I could sing country western music if I tried. You know, and if I practice long enough, I could get a group together around Fevel here. We'd go a couple places, and then we'd move out to Nashville. And we'll get a bigger band, and I'll get an agent and an attorney, and I'll sign a contract to go on tour, and then I'll need a... Tour bus, it makes sense. It makes sense. See, it's no wonder I've never been present in my family. You know what I'm saying? I've never been. In, in fact, the only time I was present is when I was drunk. Because you know what happened to me on March 26, 1966 in Greenville, North Carolina? You know what happened to me? I went to the Raskeller and I bought a tall patch blue ribbon, Tom. We talked about that today. That tall patch blue ribbon. And you know what happened to me when I did that? That thinking stopped for the first time in my life. Hundreds of forms of fear, hundreds of forms of self-delusion, hundreds of forms. And for the first time, I was really fine. I, I, in fact, I went up and asked a girl to dance. I was singing. My feet moved. I had answers. In fact, I didn't know how much information I had to share with those people that night. But I discovered it. And I knew, I knew it was upon my heart that I had to come back to that place and share more information with those people before I left there that night. I made plans to come back. You know why? Because for the first time, that thinking stopped. See, to me, that thinking is very painful. It's like this. It's like I would take an exam in school four times before I took it. Do you know what I would do on a Friday night? You know what I'm thinking about when my family's there and we're all gathered at the table, supposed to be relaxed? You know what I'm thinking? That meeting Monday morning, and what am I going to say? That deal Tuesday, what am I going to do? I'm never, ever present. And a, a priest said this in a meeting one time. We, we, the topic was, where is God? Not that anybody lost him, but the question was, where is God in your life? And he said, God is in that thin membrane, the thin membrane between the past and the future called now. And you know what I've never been able to do until I was drinking? I couldn't be in the now. I was scared to death of the future and I was ashamed and guilty and afraid of the past. Never could be present until I drank. And I was present. <laughs> you know what I did for 22 years after 1966? I, I drank to get back to Greenville, March 22nd, 1966. I just wanted to get that feeling. You know that, that feeling, that special feeling? I, you know, and I drink and I hear it comes. I knew it was between the third and fourth beer. <laughs> Here it comes. And then all of a sudden it goes, boom, right by me. And I was drunk again. I couldn't figure it out. I just wanted to get back to Greenville. I mean, what's the problem? Don't you understand? <laughs> just wanted to get back. Hundreds of forms of fear. Hundreds of forms of self-delusion. Hundreds of forms of self-seeking. I want to talk about that. See, when I was growing up, we grew up in a little rural area outside of uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, called Garner. Nothing like the Delta. We didn't have quite that much land, but we had a little bit of rural land. And we had pigs and chickens and, and butter beans and okra. I heard about the okra uh, mascot tonight at the dinner table. And, and the, the point is, we had all those things. And so my mother said to me, we've been picking butter beans. I was 13 years old. It was a hot day. And by the way, I was wearing that day what I call a pig feed sack shirt. Now, let me tell you about my pig feed sack shirt. Mother and dad would buy 200 pounds of farina pig feed, and they'd get four yards of cotton gingham cloth, my mother called it, and they would size that cloth. And my mother called it sizing. I think that was called starching. And she would cut out these patterns for us. Now, let me tell you, she would pick out the bags. She'd go in and say, yeah, we want this one and this one. And guess what she'd pick out? One white cloth with these little purple flowers and green stems and leaves. And she'd pick out little uh, strawberries with a little green thing. Not something a guy should wear for a shirt. I mean, it looked great. On, on a daughter that just didn't have one. 
But my mother would take this cloth and she'd wash it inside and she'd cut out these shirts. Now let me tell you about these shirts. Two peculiar things. Number one, my mother thought starch was next to godliness because she had to put it, I mean, you had to take a knife and cut it in these pockets. And it, but the collars were pre peculiar. They started right here and they came right from the normal spot of collar starts on the shirt, but it came on out and it came on out and it came on out and it came on. It's about, it's about eight inches off the shoulder blades in a point is what those things were. And these things were starch pretty heavy. It's like cardboard, you know. It was in the day before the Flying Nun was popular on TV, for those of you who remember that. But here came this little freckle-faced, red-headed boy, and I would come, you know, I'd put my uh, book bag in my lunch bag, and I'd run to the school bus, and my collars would catch wind. They'd start flapping like this. You know? And I'd get on the bus and say, I'm fine, how are you? I'm fine. I was fine. My mother said, you need to go get your eggs. It was a hot summer day, and I'd been wearing my pig feet sack shirt all day, and so I got my little half-pound Maxwell House coffee can. I jumped on my little 21-inch bike that was painted lawn chair green because it was the only color in the garage today. I decided to paint it. And I jumped on my bike, and I'm heading to the woods, and my mother yelled, David, don't you ride that bike. You'll fall and break those eggs. And I pretended I didn't hear. And I went down there, and I got 13 eggs that day. I got on my bike, and I'm riding back and just cool, and my, my collars were flapping in the wind. Now, they didn't do that when it got wet because they drooped real bad when it got wet. But I get to the back porch, and I hit my brakes, and the next thing I know, I'm feeling this bike falling out from under me. And I'm laying on my side before I know it with 13 raw eggs broken on my face and my pig feet sack shirt and I got mud all over me. And my mother went berserk. I've never seen this, but it was, I was 13 and she came off the porch and as I started to get up, she kicked me down. And as I got up, she kept kicking me back down. And my, my Aunt Marie was there and she said, Letha, you're going to kill that boy. And so she stopped. And I lay there and I thought, this is over. And about the time I started to get up uh, again, my mother took the broom we'd been sweeping the holes and she broke it across my back. And she was, she was a very angry person. And you know what I did? I laid there. And here's what happened to me. Hundreds of forms of fear. Hundreds of forms of self-delusion. Hundreds of forms of self-seeking. You know what I think I started to decide that day, the next few minutes, the next few days, the next few weeks, the next 27 years of my life? You know what I decided? That the power I understood at that time, the higher power that I understood, that I chose to call God, that that God was not going to save me. That if I was going to survive this thing called life, I had to do it myself. The only problem is I missed a stadium meeting. You know, I, I was out of the meeting and, and I didn't have the plan. You know what I'm saying? I, I, just, I, I was the only one that didn't have the plan. But I had to have a plan. And I lay there and I thought, what can I do? And, I, and here, let me tell you about the God I understood as a child. I, I understood a God that I would lay on my back and, and fly my kites at seven, eight, nine years old. And I would look up at the sky, beautiful day like today. And I look at all these cloud shapes coming by. And I'd say, oh, here comes a rabbit and here comes a dog. And I knew if I looked long and hard enough, you know what was going to happen? God was going to stick his head out and go, hi, Dave, how you doing? And I was going to go, hi, God. You doing okay? I'm fine, God. How you doing? I mean, that's what I understood as God. That day, I understood that that God was not going to help me. That if I was going to survive Garner Road, if I was going to ever have a store-bought shirt, if I was ever not going to pick a butter bean or an okra <laughs> or get eggs, I had to do it myself. Self-seeking. And I want to tell you, I started on a course. And I lay there and I remember thinking, what can I do? And I, we had an Uncle Alfonso who was a great uncle and an attorney, and everybody thought he was successful. And I knew that I had to go to college. I knew I had to get education. I knew that I had to do something to get out of this deal. You see, here's what happened. As I went through teenagehood, as I went into uh, to my 19 years of uh, uh, and started to drinking, I didn't have the plan, <laughs> but I kept telling you I did. You want a plan? I can give you a plan. I don't know what it is, but I, let me talk. You want, oh, sure, I can do that. I, I think I'm going to do that too. I had not a clue. But when I started drinking, you know what? I came within 10 minutes and two beers of having my life figured out numerous times. You know what I'm saying? I'd be there with a wet napkin. I'd be sitting there and I'd go, well, you know, I've almost got the plan. I'm, 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 give me one more. One more. I've almost got it. I don't know if you ever did that. And I'd write little notes to myself and I'd write a poem or country and western song or something. And the next morning I'd try to read this stuff. You know, it's like, well, you know, he's like, what in the world is that? Couldn't make sense of it. But I almost had it. I thought, that moment of clarity. When I was 21, I want to share this with you because I think it's important, part of my story. At 21, Don and I were getting married. And you, by the way, you'll hear the uh, unedited version of my story tomorrow when she tells her. Just get, just get. Just. But uh, I, we were moving a washer dryer and I pulled a, a muscle in the shoulder and the doctor put me in the hospital and he said, don't you take Valium and Darvon for pain every four hours. Well, I did that faithfully for 20 years. Uh, every day. Now, I want to tell you that I drank for 22 years, and people say, uh, are you an alcoholic? And I want to tell you that I am. And you know why I know I'm an alcoholic? Because only a bottle of bourbon, only a case of beer, only bottles of wine 
would get me to where I needed to go. And people say you're in your recovery. How much do you drink? How much did you drink? And the answer is whatever it took. That day, <laughs> it was different every day. <laughs> Just whatever it took today is what I got. And if I didn't have it, I'd go get some more. I mean, we just had to do the deal today, if I could just make it today. I drank, and I don't want to give you a drunk log, but I want to tell you about the last two years I drank because they're very important to me. Is that what I did over those period, a period of time, at first I called it partying, but I kept doing funny things. Uh, my, my wife woke me up, uh, I came to, and she said, there's a guy out here, it was a Saturday morning, I've been to a party. I called it partying on weekends. I mean, if you work hard, you're entitled to a party now and then, you know what I'm saying? And, and so I, I got up and, and I went to the back door, and I mean, I'm, I'm hung over and I can't quite focus well. And this guy's there and he's got a cooler under his arms, 5.30 in the morning. He said, you ready to go? I said, go? Where are we going? He said, I got the cooler full of beer. He said, we're going to the beach. Are you ready to go? I said, who are you? <laughs> and he said, he said, he said, what? And I said, who are you? And he looked at me and I wish I could have picked up on this because I was only about 26. He said, you drunk. Because see, he knew about me and I didn't know about myself. And he turned around and walked off to this day. I don't know who that guy was. No idea. But obviously we'd arranged. One morning I woke up. I was about, you know. Donna woke up and she, you know, I learned when I woke up from these parties that I answered her questions with questions. I learned I don't give her answers because I don't remember a lot about what happened. And she said to me, David, uh, what are you going to do with that guy you hired last night? Well, uh, Donna, I'd love to have your input on that. What do you think? We <laughs> I had not a clue. <laughs> and the only thing I can tell you is that I sweat bullets the rest of that weekend waiting for Monday morning because I had no idea who's going to show up. And the guy must have been as drunk as I was because he never showed up. <laughs> but I started doing strange things. I remember when I was 32 years old, I laid in the bed in South America and I was in a strange place with a strange person. I had no clue where I was. I was scared to death. And you know what I realized that day? That the God I understood now as an adult, I had done one thing too many and he would never forgive me. I knew that. And it was just now time to kind of bide the time away. You know, until... It'll be over. It'll be over. I don't know if you know that feeling. That hopelessness starts to set in. It'll be over one day. And I started to sit. I, I live on a, 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 a lake and we have a little Ajon boat. And I would sit there on a Saturday like tomorrow, a beautiful Saturday. You know what I start doing about 8 or 8.30? Start drinking. You know what I start about doing about 9.30, 10 o'clock? I start planning how I was going to take that boat out in that lake and drown myself in that spot because it was 25 feet of water. And I would envision my that, that I would go over and I was going to tie this rope to my left ankle and I was going to throw these two cinder blocks in it crazy anchor for a little 14-foot boat, but I was going to throw it over, and I was going to jump in with them, then I could see these uh, the, the bubbles, and I would see the bubbles, and my chest would burn, then I was laying in a casket, and I'd sit there and just get all involved in this plan, just drinking, listen to music, listen to my old good old music, and, I, and then I'd see these people walk by, and they'd say things, boy, if he hadn't married that woman he married, he'd have been a good man. Boy, if he didn't have those children just trying to, you know, get him for everything he's worth, he'd been a good man. Boy, if he didn't have that job he had, poor David. And I'd set three or four such poor Davids. And I'd come to, you know why? Because I hadn't tied the rope right. You see, I, I wanted it to be an accident. I had to be fine. You know, just out there and I slipped, you know, I'm fine. Even in my death. And my family came to me and they said, you're sick. Because you know why? The only place I felt safe was a five foot by seven foot bathroom. Let me tell you about my room. I'd, I would go get a couple of beers and put them in my sport coat out of the bottom of the refrigerator, cover it all up with celery, carrots, and lettuce. I call it my vegetable drawer. And I knew they knew that it wasn't there. You know, if I put it in there when they were in the kitchen, they had no way of knowing that my beer was in there. And I'd put it in my pockets and I'd sneak down the hall walking humpback like this so it wouldn't stick out. And I'd go in my, my little bathroom and I'd close the door and lock it and I'd cut on my exhaust fan. I was a closet smoker the last five years I smoked. And I'd take out my cigarettes and magazine rack. I'd sit on the toilet, pull me a magazine out, light me a cigarette, pop, take my two beers out, sit them on the cabinet, top, pop me a top, sit there, smoking, drinking, and reading a magazine. Now how much better could you want it? You know what I'm saying? And then I drink the other beer. And you know what I do? I don't know why I did this. If anybody has this experience, share it with me afterwards. I take toilet paper and wrap the beer cans in toilet paper. I don't know why. And I put them back in my pocket. And I take the ashes and flush them down the toilet. I'd spray the room with Lysol spray, spray me with Lysol spray, walk out, grab a little little voice and spit it out because I don't want to see me smoking and drinking. You know. And I'd go back and I would go into the kitchen. I'd take my beer cans, if they weren't there, and put them about halfway down with the toilet paper on. And I go back and sit down and say, now, what were y'all talking about? 
And if my family finally towards the end, they just got they would just leave. They'd go to their mother, her mother's or they just go to bed. And I would sit there. And when they left, you know what I'd do? I'd go get me a beer out of the refrigerator and put it on my easy, my, right beside my easy chair like I owned the house or something. Like, hey, hey, hey. And that lasted about an hour. Then I was upset and angry because where are they now? Don't they know I'm hungry? Hundreds of forms of self-pity. I went to treatment because my family said I had to. And I truly, truly mean this. I was sick enough, thank God, I believed to go. Because I didn't have an answer anymore. I don't know if you, I didn't have any answers. And I went to treatment. I was there three days and Claire said to me, they finally let me out of detox a little bit and they put me in this treatment group. And she said, David, I was sitting there, I had my a nice starch shirt, had blown dry my hair. I mean, I was cool that day. And she said, David, why are you so angry? I said, me? Are you talking to me? I'm not angry. I was going around to the treatment center like this, you know. And she said, she said, no, you're angry. And then the group, not a group does. They jumped in. You're angry. You're lying to us. You're lying to yourself. I said, well, okay, I'm angry. And they said, well, what are you angry with? Or who? I said, my mother. <laughs> and boy, you know. And they said, well, why? Well, I told them about 13 and 14 and 15 and 16. <laughs> I mean, I told them at all. I mean, it just came roaring out. And my, my counselor looked at me and she said, David. She said, where's your mother right now? I said, she's in Raleigh. She said, how far is that? I said, oh, four, five, six hundred miles, I guess. She said, what do you think she had for dinner last night? I said, Claire, I don't know. It's here in detox. She said, what would you have wanted if you ate there? I said, fried chicken, potato salad, green beans, a roll, a lemon ring pie, and iced tea. She said, David, what did you have here in detox last night for dinner? And I said, well, I wasn't too hungry, Claire. And I was dealing with a few things, a little upset stomach, you know, trying to figure my life out. I had a little roll and a little tea. She said, David, how much sleep do you think your mother got last night? I said, I don't know. She said, well, how much? I said, okay, seven hours. She said, David, how much sleep did you get last night? I said, well, Clary and I was dealing with a few things. And I was like, you know, and I had to smoke cigarettes and I had to go to the day room. So maybe an hour and a half. She already knew that. The nurse had told her. She said, David, what do you think your mother had for breakfast? By this time, I'm going, this lady is off her rocker. And I said, well, she had two eggs over easy grits, sausage, and onion. She said, what did you have, David, for breakfast this morning? I said, well, Clary, I was dealing with a few things. I'm a little upset stomach. You know, I wasn't too hungry. I had a little toast and a little coffee. She said, David, where do you think your mother is right now? She said, how old is she? I said, she's 69. She's retired. She said, well, what do you think she's doing this morning? I said, well, she's probably talking to a friend, watching a soap opera, you know, watching a game show. Something like that. She's retired. She said, David, where are you right now? And for the first time in my life, you know what I did? I stopped. I don't know if you know what I mean by stopped. See, just stopped. And I said, I'm sitting in a treatment center trying to kill myself. And she said some very important things to me. She said, it seems like to me that your mother's doing pretty well. And that her life is going on pretty well. And it seems to me that you're killing yourself. She said, do you get that picture? <laughs> and she said, you know what? The interesting thing about this, David, is your mother doesn't even know you're fighting her. I said, of course she knows. I mean, if you're fighting somebody and they don't know you're fighting them, how can there be a fight? <laughs> you know, like, sure she knows. She said, have you ever walked up to your mother and pulled her by her blouse to your face and said, mother, every day the rest of my life I'm going to show you and let her go? <laughs> I said, no. She said, then she does not know. And she said, the fight you're fighting is between your two ears. And I said, that can't be. She said, of course it can be. She said, that's why when you go see her, she's okay. Because <laughs> she doesn't know you're fighting her. And she said, what do you think you were going to show her? And you know what? I thought about that a lot. And in my inventory work, you know what I think I was going to show my mother? That I could survive this thing called life without her. I didn't need her. I didn't know what I needed, but it wasn't her. That's what I was going to do. And she said this. She said, you got to choose to stop fighting her. I said, Claire, I don't have a choice. She said, yes, you have a choice. I said, well, how do I choose to stop fighting her? She said, first, you have to admit that you're powerless over alcohol, that your life has become unmanageable, and that your life has become unmanageable as a result of your drinking. Can you admit that? Three days in treatment. I said, I, I can see that my life's unmanageable. The powerless part was a little difficult at that point. And I, she said, okay. She said, can you admit you're powerless over your mother? And that you're powerless over what happened to you at 14 and 15 and 16. That your life is very unmanageable as a result of this. I said, well, I can understand the unmanageable part. She said, David, what you need to do is to pray for your mother every day what you want for yourself. And I said, well, uh, Clara, I, I want to do a lot of things to my mother, but praying for her is not one of those things. She said, but you got to. And she, had, she said, if you, if you don't do that, if you don't agree to do that, you have to leave today by 530. And I want to tell you, folks, I didn't know where to go because my family gave me clear instructions. They wanted me fixed before I came back. And so I uh, 
I said, okay. And I got in the shower the next morning, turned the water on, turned the water in the, spin- in the sink on, flushed the toilet, jumped in the shower and said, dear God. And she said, by the way, what are you going to pray? I said, what? she said, what do you want? I said, I want to be happy, joyous, sober, and free. She said, pray that for your mother. I said, but my mother doesn't drink. She said, that's okay. Pray for her to be sober anyway. So I prayed that prayer very haltingly. Nothing happened. I mean, the, the shower floor didn't fall through. The curtain didn't tear. But you know what happened? I went back to group and they said, did you pray for your mother? I said, yes. You know what she said to me? She said, would you agree to pray every day for the next two weeks? I said, I can do that. I was there three months, two weeks at a time. I'd get to the end. Of two, did you pray for every day? Yeah, we'll pray for more. Can you do it two more weeks? And when I left that, that treatment center, she said three things to me. She said, I want you to get a sponsor. I had to call and get a temporary sponsor, Herb T., uh, out of Fevel, and, and uh, who's passed on that big meeting, but he would agree to be my sponsor. And she said, I want you to do, number two, she said, I want you to pray for your mother every day. And number three, I want you to go home and enjoy your family. Don't fix them. Now, I want to tell you, that was a high order. And I went home to do that. And you know what happened? We had, by the way, uh, we had at that time 17-year-old son, a uh, uh, 6'5", 225-pound tackle on the football team. We had a 13-year-old. Uh, he's now 6'6", big dude. But at that time, he was our runner. He'd get on his bike and just leave. And David, the older one, would get in and just kind of fix us all. He was just getting there arguing. And we just, and you see, the rule in our home when I went to treatment is ye who yelled the loudest and the longest won. That was the deal. And while I was, while I was gone, uh, our son, 17-year-old, was putting his fist through our walls. I don't know how he missed the, the wood studs, but he just walked down the hall and just do that. He was knocking windshields out of cars. He was threatening to commit suicide. He was a very, very angry young man. And my counselor said, go home and enjoy them. Don't fix them. You know what I mean? And so I get home. And you know what I did? I bought a 10,000 joke book by Milton Berle. It was a big old thick, and I still have it in the trunk of my car. And I would take that book to work, and I'd put it on my front seat, and I'd, on the way home, I'd memorize two or three jokes. And I'd come in, and you know what we did in our home? We, we, we laughed like this. He, he, he. You know what I'm saying? It was like a, you know what I'm saying? The laugh came from right here. It was a he, he, he laugh. It was a never, it wasn't a belly laugh. You know why? Because it was waiting for the next shoe. It was waiting for Daddy to get drunk or not come home, or when he came home, Donna to yell at him and, and me to yell at Donna. It was when Scott would leave yelling and screaming. It was that kind of life that we lived. I don't know if you know what I'm saying, but it was that, that was our life. And so it was never a, a relaxed laugh. It was a he, he, he. And so I got home and I'd say, well, dun, 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 dun. What do you think of this joke? And I'd tell them a joke. And they'd look at me in utter amazement. And they'd go, Dad. And I'd tell another one, Dad. I said, well, okay, I'm going to go practice. I'd go to the bedroom and practice and come back. Well, what about this one? Dun, 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 dun. Boom, and I tell them again. And you know what they started doing? They started laughing at how bad my jokes were. The laugh was not about the joke. The laugh was that I was trying to tell the joke. And you know what we started to do? We started to belly laugh for the first time in our lives. And I laughed with them as they were laughing at and with me. And what a wonderful change. I don't know if you know that. It was a moment that I can remember. I was home about three nights and my oldest son, David, was watching TV. It was 4.30 uh, on a Monday morning. I was scared to death to go back to work, you know, that whole deal. And he had the TV up real loud. And I went into the den and I used my best treatment motif. And I went in and I said, excuse me, son, let me tell you how I feel right now. Uh, <clears throat> I'm feeling very frightened and a little angry <clears throat> because I need, I need sleep. And I need for you to cut the TV down. Would you do that, please? And he looked at me and he said, I'm not going to cut it down and you can't make me. <laughs> and I said, let me explain my feelings to you, son. I mean, let me try one more time. You know what I'm saying? I need for you to cut the TV down. I'm feeling a little frightened. You know? Well, he jumped off the sofa and he got over right in my face. And he's 6'5". And I'm, I'm looking up at him like this. And he's going, he's punching me in the chest. And he said, I'm not going to cut the TV down and you can't make me. You know? And you know what I did? I lost my treatment motif at that point. And I started punching him back. You know, Yes, you are. And you know what I started to do? I started to claim the territory back. You see, I'm thinking, I know what's wrong with this guy. I've been gone for three months, and he's got reign of this house, and he's taking control. So I, it's my TV. This is my house. And I just took all the possessions back. You know, my, and I was punching him. And he yelled as loud as I've ever heard any words right in my face. He had that far from me. He said, you alcoholic, you've destroyed my life. Get out of it. <laughs> I'd been sober for 93 days. And uh, I'd call myself an alcoholic <laughs> at meetings, but none of my family had. And, and I didn't know what to do. You know what? I don't know why I didn't hit him. I'm serious, I don't. But I walked down the hall, and I'll never forget, I went in my bedroom, and Donna was in there, and I, and I said, did you hear what happened? Well, you could not knock three houses down. And I got on my knees, and I didn't know what to do, because see that coming to believe a little more that this power greater than me was going to restore me to sanity? And I, I, sat, I sat there on the side of the bed, and I got on my knees, and I started crying, and I said, Donna, what should I do? And she said, these little, these Al-Anon moments, she said, why don't you call your sponsor? <laughs> what a novel idea. So I called Keith. It was like five o'clock and I said, Good morning, Keith. Did I wake you up? Oh no, David, you <laughs> he never would let 
Keith, you know what my son just called me? He called me a alcoholic. <laughs> He's, and, and Keith said, well, aren't you? I said, well, yeah, I am. He said, well, he called you what you are. I said, but he was yelling at me and punching me in the chest. He said, were you yelling at him and punching him in the chest? I said, yeah, but he provoked me. Now, that's not a word I would suggest you use around Keith L. It didn't set with him too well. He didn't like that provoke stuff. He said, well, here's what I want you to do. He said, I want you to go back down the hall. I want you to walk up to him and say, David, I'm very sorry I yelled at you, and I'll try not to ever do that again. And David, may I have permission to hug you? <laughs> Thank you, Keith. I... <laughs> hey, I appreciate that. Thank you. I'm so sorry I woke you up this morning. Thank you very much. And, I, and you know what I thought? I'll never do that. Give me a hug. Give me a What's the deal here? You know how I handle stuff like that? You know how I did? I'm serious now. You know how I handle stuff like that in my household? I would not look at my son for two weeks in the eyes. I would walk down the hall and not acknowledge his existence. He would say, good morning, Daddy, and I would say nothing. And I would look straight ahead. I would show him who's in control. We'd sit at the dinner table and he'd say, Daddy, pass the potatoes. And I would get the potatoes almost to him and I'd sit them down. So he'd have to pick them up. And I never acknowledged his presence. For two weeks or so I'd do that. You know what I thought I was doing? Showing him who's in charge. So when that morning Keith told me to hug him, <laughs> I knew how to handle this deal. So I took a shower and went to work. And I got to work and this is what happened to me. I stood in my office and I had been stealing uh, vodka from the chairman of the board's uh, liquor closet for several years, and I knew exactly where it was. I knew exactly. And I fill it back up with a little water. I mean, you know, who cares? I mean, And I stood there, and a ball hit my stomach right here in my gut as big as I've ever had it hit. I was as nauseated. I thought I was going to throw up. And I knew that I had to do one of two things. I knew I had to go take that bottle to kill this pain. It's too great. I don't know if you know what I'm saying. That pain was just too great. Or I had to do what my sponsor told me to do. Tough decision. And I decided to get back in my car and drive home. It was daybreak by the time I got home. And uh, my son was in the backyard pacing up and down the lake. Very angry young man. And I walked over to him. I said, David, I'm very sorry I yelled at you. And I'll try not to do that again. And he looked at me like I was an absolute stranger. <laughs> and in fact, I was. Never done that in my life. 17 years of living. And I said, may I have permission to hug you? And he said, what? <laughs> He's I said, can I hug you? Well, yeah. <laughs> it was like hugging this podium. He was just so rigid. He was just standing there like this. And I put my arms around him. I didn't touch him now. I put my arms around him, almost you know, to make sure I didn't touch his shoulders. And I had my head like this, but not touching anything. And I closed my eyes. And you know what I was thinking? My sponsor is full of bull. Because I said the two lines he gave. I don't know if your sponsor ever gives you lines. But he, my sponsor gives me lines. And I said them. And I knew I had to let this guy go and put my tail between my legs and get back in the car and go to work. And I'd lost control of the house forever. And just about the second I started to let him go, you know what David did to me? He grabbed me and he hugged me and he wept on my shoulder and he said, Daddy, I am so sorry. I am so sorry I yelled at you. Please, please forgive me. I am so proud of you for trying a new way of life. And I want to let you know that I want to support you in everything you do. Please forgive me. And you know what I was able to do? I was able to hug him and cry on his shoulder and say, David, when I was laying on the ground at 13, I had no idea that you would live in my house for 17 and a half years and never, ever know me one moment of one day without alcohol or drugs in my body. I am very sorry. Please forgive me. It's an important moment. Because, see, two things happen. <clears throat> the two things that happen, number one, is I came to believe a little more that this power greater than me was going to restore not only me, but my son and me to sanity. That was an important point. The second thing is I realized that David and I could start over. <laughs> I don't know if you know what I'm saying, just to start over. I didn't know we could do that. Now, let me say that David and I went back in the house. I told him that Keith had suggested I do this. I would try to be honest with him. He said, well, can I call Keith? We went back and woke up Keith again. <laughs> I said, well, Keith, how you doing? Oh, you didn't wake me up. <laughs> I said, look, David's on the phone, and David was thanking him. And, and finally, he got off the phone. And here's what Keith said to me. I said, well, Keith, thank you. You have a great day, and I was ready to go celebrate again. He said, no, I'll just talk to you some more, David. Hang on the phone a second. I said, what is that? He said, now I want you to start sponsoring your children. I don't want you to parent them anymore. 17 and 13. I said, what do you mean? He said, I do not want you to give them any more opinions or advice. They've had enough. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, you do not give them anything until they ask you for it. 
I said, but they'll never ask me anything. They don't want to hear what I've got to say. He said, isn't that great? That part of your life over with. And he said, when you when they come to you, if you don't have experience with the topic, don't give them an answer. And 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 I want to tell you that's real important for me. I mean that seriously because when I was David was 16, about a year before I went to treatment, I was drinking one Saturday, and his best friend Hugh's transmission had fallen out, and they'd taken it to a garage. And David came home and said, Dad, do you know anything about transmissions? Of course, son. What do you need to know? And, oh, it's a automatic. And I said, Well, it's probably that front drive belt. Da da da. And I was going through this whole transmission. Have never ever in my life looked inside of an automatic transmission. And my son was so excited, he went up to the garage to tell the mechanic what my dad, his dad had told him he had discovered about this transmission. And the mechanic looked at my son with his best friend present and said, Who told you this bunch of bull? That's what I did in advice. That's exactly what I did. And so he said, if you don't have experience, you refer them to somebody in the program who does. If you don't have anybody in the program who has experience, you refer them to somebody outside the program who does. But you do not give them any more advice. I want to tell you, that is the hardest job I've ever had to this day. Because you know what? I was telling Susan and Tom this today. I have had the perfect 12-step program, timing, day of the week, the moment of the year. I've had it for every one of my family members, if they just listened to it. You know what I'm saying? I knew exactly what they needed to do. not my business. My second, our second son, Scott, took eight years before we started over. And in everybody and Don and I, some days we struggle to start over some days. But the point is, we've all had to do it in our time and our way. It's not my plan. None of my business. That's tough for me. Because it was always... Three weeks after this, I, my son was laying on the, on the floor going into his senior year. Now, let me tell you what I did to my son. I set him up. You know why I set him up when he first got his grades in the third grade? He said, if you get an A, I'll give you $15. If you get a B, I'll give you 10 If you get a C or a D, you pay me money. You know what he did? He did wonderfully. And he was laying on the floor. He was so depressed that summer. He'd already threatened to commit suicide. He couldn't try out for the football team. Could not get off the sofa. I mean, literally laid on the sofa all day long. Very, very sick young man. And you know what he said to me? Dad, I don't know that I can make valedictorian. I'm three points or three hundredths of a point short, and I don't got, you know. And I looked at this guy, and I realized what bondage he was in. And I went over and I said, David, please forgive me. I never, ever want to see your report card again. That is your business. It's your business. I trust you. And you know what he did? He rolled off the sofa, got on his back, kicked his feet and hands in the air like a little three, three-year-old who had lost its candy. He said, what, do you, what will grandmother think? You can't do this. What will grandpa think? And he went to his whole family, his whole identity. And I got down beside of him and I hugged him and I said, son, it's okay. It's okay. Please forgive me. He went through his senior year. I never saw his report card. He went through two years at University of North Carolina. I never saw his report card. I realized I needed to support him, not because he had to make good grades, but because I chose to support him. He came home at the end of his sophomore year and he had an envelope and he said, Dad, I want you to look at my grades. I said, why? Can you tell me why? He said, yeah, because I want you to help me celebrate my accomplishments. Interesting. Interesting. You see, what we have, this whole program has allowed us to do is to look at this whole thing of living, of living as a family. I want to talk to you about my fourth step because I think it's important. Third step for me, and going back to that for a second, is made a decision. I had a real hard time with God. I was very angry with God. I've told you why. And I knew God was out to get me. I just needed to get him first. And my sponsor told me an important thing. I said, Scott, I said, Keith, I, I think I can turn my will and my life over to the care of God. He said, you can't do that. I said, why? He said, because you don't trust him. I said, well, I think I can do that. He said, no. He said, you got to first get honest with God. He said, why don't you go in your backyard tonight, look up at the sky and tell God exactly what you think of him. And I said, he'll kill me. <laughs> And you know what he said? God's big enough to handle it. And so I did that. And he told me to start writing God a letter. I started doing that in the morning and telling him exactly what I thought to get honest. If I was going to ever have a relationship, I was going to make a decision in step three and start building that relationship in the remaining steps up to step 12. I had to take those kinds of actions. So I started doing it. Then we got to step four. He said, I want you to write down your fears. He gave me a little legal pad and two number two pencils. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I wanted a pen and I wanted to write a, a, a copyrighted story. It was really good. He said, I want you to write any sentences. I don't want you to, I want you to write just words, phrases. And he said, I want you to write about your fear. And he said, I want you to pray this prayer. Sit down and say, God, in your time and your way, please show me what, what fears I have in my life. And just get quiet and listen. Do that every day for 15 minutes. He said, then I want you to come and he skipped a couple pages. He said on this pad and he said, I want you to put resentments. Like 65 in the big book. Uh, who, who? My mother. What happened? She kicked me. Uh, what did it affect in me? 
physical security, fear, uh, self-esteem. And then we we did that. And then uh, I had to write about sex. He left the rest of the pad, by the way, about the sex thing. He left the rest of that deal. But then when I got to him on the on the fifth step, I had to read it to God. I had to read that work to God on my knees, as it said, admit it to God. I had to read it to myself in front of a full-length mirror and stand there in coat and tie and read it to myself. And then I had to read it to him. And at the end of that time together, I was ready to move on to six and seven. He said, oh, no, no. He said, we're going to look at we're going to look at what your part is in the resentments. And I want to come back. Hundreds of forms of fear, hundreds of forms of self uh, of self-seeking, hundreds of forms of self-delusion and hundreds of forms of self-pity. And to me, I want to share this because it's been the most unbelievable experience of freedom I've ever had. I, I'll tell you how it went. I, uh, I went, uh, by the way, on page 67, it said, was I afraid or was I dishonest or was I selfish? Uh, you know, in, 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 was I frightened? And that, that was my part in the resentment. And here's what I had. See, for me, a resentment was justified. You know why? The act justified the resentment. <laughs> it's just that simple. Here's what my mom did to me. I have a right. And, 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 and here's what Keith had me to do. He said, no, I don't want to know about your part in the act. He said, because you're a child. Any child who's physically abused, sexually abused, it is not their fault. They're children. He said, but I want you to look at your part from the moment the act ended for the next 27 years in the resentment of the act. He said, look at your part in that. <laughs> now, I never looked at it that way, folks. Trying to separate the act and what was my part. And what my part was I was frightened and selfish and dishonest. Just as page 67 said in the big book. And here's what happened. I was about two years sober and I called him one night. And it was 9.30 on Friday night. I said, Keith, you won't believe what my boss said to me. He came into me at quarter five today and he told me about the record. He didn't like it. And, and, da, da, da. and I was just livid. I was angry. And, and, and he said, David, what time is it? I said, it's 9.30. He said, a.m. or p.m.? I said, it's p.m., Keith. It's Friday night. He said, uh. What time did your weekend start? You know, the only weekend you've got this week to celebrate the work you've done. I said, 5 o'clock. He said, now, what time is it? I said, 9.30. He said, well, when do you think you're going to start your weekend? You're going to wait and hold on to this till 9 o'clock tomorrow morning and just mess up your whole Friday night? He said something else. He said, or maybe, maybe, he said, maybe, David, maybe you can hold on to it to 6 o'clock Saturday afternoon, Saturday afternoon and destroy your whole day. He said, of course, you could. Now, if you wanted to do this one, you could handle it this way. You could wait until Sunday morning at 10 o'clock and destroy your whole Saturday night. He said, of course, now, you can also wait till Sunday afternoon about 8 o'clock. And he said, and destroy your whole Sunday. Now, he said, of course, now, you, either, you can go for Grand Slam and you can wait till 9 o'clock on Monday and destroy your whole weekend. He said, what are you going to choose to do? And then he said this. I said, well, Keith, I don't know. I don't know that I've got a choice. He said, David, what do you get out of being a victim? You know what I said? Keith, I don't get anything. He said, you must get something because you keep doing it. And he slammed the phone down. I called him back. I said, we need to talk about this. And we have. We've spent time. We've written. We've inventoried. And what he asked me to do is identify what I got out of being a victim. And you know, let me tell you what I've got. My being a victim over my resentments as a result of these acts, I got a powerful position. I got an excuse for unexcusable behavior. I got an excuse. I could sit at a bar and bartender would say at O'Brien's and Fable, David, don't you have it? Let me have one more. No, I think you've had enough. And I'd say something like, if you were raised by the, by my mother and beat like she beat me, you'd drink too. Oh, I'm sorry, David. I didn't realize you had such a hard life. It explained unexplainable behavior. It excused unexcusable behavior. That's what it was a very powerful thing for me. And then my sponsor, when we got to step, we were working on step eight too, and he said, I want you to take your step eight, the people you owe an amends to, which I'd listed. He said, I want you to identify on step eight how many of those are your persecutors. If you're a victim, you've got to have somebody to persecute you. I went down my top 15. Thirteen of them were my persecutors. Now, let me tell you who they were all my life. It was God. He let my first girlfriend leave me. He let my grandmother die. My father die of cancer. Da, da, da. I had it listed. It was my mother, it was my father, my brother, my sister-in-law, my sister, my brother-in-law. It was my wife, it was my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, my two sons. It was my brother-in-law and, and sister-in-law. And it was Aunt Lassie and a girl named Betty Jo at work. All my life. If they would just understand me. If they would under And he said, what are you giving up by treating them as a persecutor? And here's what I've given up. I gave up the right to an intimate relationship with them. That's what I gave up. All my life. And when I came to this program, I was intimately and ultimately alone. <laughs> you know why? The closest people in my world <laughs> that were supposedly the closest in my world, I could not have a relationship with. 
they were out to get me. I don't know if you know that feeling. I don't know if you know that feeling. And so we've worked in, in, in step work again in steps six and seven. What I've had to realize, and Tom has got a 12-step series out of, out of Richmond. I've been listening to you the last week or so in my car, and I really appreciate Tom's point here, is that, that this whole thing for me is about accepting my acceptance. And Tom was saying, the shortcomings are the opposite of my defects of character. If I have hatred, my shortcoming is I don't have enough love. <laughs> you know, I love that, that model. But the point I'm making is this. I started to look at this. He said to me, he said, David, he said, uh, do you realize that that morning at 32 when you thought you'd done one thing too many, do you think God accepted you that morning? I said, yeah, because I got my family way back to the hotel. I mean, it was, um, I was so scared. I didn't know where I was. He said, so he accepted you. I said, yeah. He said, can you accept that acceptance? <laughs> and you know what I'm finding? That I need defects of character when I can't accept the acceptance because I'm in survival mode. And my defects help me survive. I learned them. The condition. The condition of my life. I learned them very well. He had me write the seven deadly sins. Uh, pride, greed, lust, envy, jealousy, sloth, and uh, what other one. And he said, I want you to write what they are. And I had to learn in a dictionary. He said, then I want you to write how you use them in your life. And I had to do that. And then he said, I want you to tell me what price you pay when you use them. That was very revealing. You know what price I pay when I use lust? Abject aloneness <laughs> from God and from people. I give up friendships. I give up the ability to have friends. I had to look at that. And then I had to come to this conclusion. I must say to you, in step eight and getting ready for that, in, in, the, in the step work that followed, I had to decide truly for me, do I want to live that way anymore? On page 66, it says this, that resentments rob us of the very hours that could have been worthwhile. And I want to tell you, it said that resentments keep us out of the sunlight of the spirit. And that's the one most wonderful phrase, because you know what? My being a victim does. It requires that I stay in crisis and live in crisis. It requires that I can't change from that. If you say, how's it going, David? I have to make something up. I have to tell you how bad this new job is, even though the salary's great. I have to tell you about the three hours I changed the tire going to Knoxville, not the six days I had a ball in Knoxville at the World Fair. I have to tell you about my crisis. And that's how I live. And when I live as a victim, you know what I can do wonderfully well as a victim? I can work the 12 steps in my persecutor's life to a T. But I cannot work them in my life at all. Because I can't get honest. Got to step eight and my sponsor said, you have to start acting differently so people will treat you differently. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you have to start acting like a child so they'll stop treating you like a child. And I was a little offended by that, by the way. My counselor told me I'd be 19 when I got into the recovery, even though I was 41, uh, because I'd started drinking at 19. But you know how old I was spiritually? Third grade. Back on my back, watching the sky, looking for God. That's where I was. I just forgot it. And he said, I want you to start acting differently. I'm going to pick my mother back up, because I don't want you to think that ended there. Uh, and he said, I want you to write your mother. Now, I've been praying for her for a year and a half in recovery. We live 65 miles apart. And I would see her a half day on Christmas and a half day on Thanksgiving. Thank you very much. And you know, I was, it's like this. I wanted to see my mother. I, I really did. And I was really excited about going. And I would get there. And I'd be there maybe eight and a half to ten minutes. And I'd think, why in the world did I come here? What in the world am I doing? And it was like my mother had a vacuum cleaner hooked up to my insides, kind of sucking them out. It's just a horrible feeling. And so Keith helped me to understand that when I went to my mother's house, I had, if she came over to talk to me, I had to walk behind the chair and hold on to it. So I knew she couldn't suck my insides out. And that's a true story. And he said, and she said, if, if you, if she wants to talk to you, you ask her to go to the dining room table and you put your hands on that table and you realize that she can't get to you. I really, I think it's important because I didn't know that that's how I felt, but I didn't want to be around her. And he said, I want you to start writing your mother. You're an after Friday. I've been praying for her. I said, I don't have anything to say. He said, that's not the question. He said, I want you to write her. I said, but what do I say? I, he said, I want you to get a little funny card from Eckerd's drugstore, a little smiley face, and I did. He said, put, Dear Mom, thinking of you, David. I said, but I'm thinking bad thoughts. <laughs> and he said, that's okay, she won't know that. And she'll think you're thinking good thoughts. You know, she doesn't know you're fighting. I said, oh, okay. So I mailed the card. Three weeks later, he said, have you got anything back? I said, no. He said, write her again. I said, what do I say? He said, say the same thing. Dear Mom, thinking of you, David. He mailed it. And you know what happened? She wrote me back. She sent me a little uh, a cartoon out of the paper on Donald Duck. I speak like Donald Duck. And I was like, this is great. You know what I did? I wrote her back. And we live 65 miles apart. You know what she did? She wrote me back. It's strange how things work that way. And you know what she would say? She said, David, thank you so much for letting me know that you're thinking about me every day. I didn't say that. 
Plus, I was thinking bad things. And so we've been writing about four or five, six months. And I said, I wrote her. I said, Mom, why don't you come down and visit us? She so my sister brought her down. She was 71 by this time. And so she came in. And my, my brother and I were sitting here in the, in the den. And she came over and she sat down on the end of the sofa. And she said these words. Now, she's 71 years old. She said, David and Larry, when I was six years old, I sat in Grandma Honeycutt's lap. And she ran her fingers through my hair and told me what beautiful red hair I had. And what a nice, sweet girl I was. And everything within me wanted to say, Mother, I've heard that dumb story 250 times. We're here to visit. And you know what? Something stopped me. And you know what? I saw in her that she was terrorized. <laughs> that she was so frightened, she did not know what to say to her own two sons. And you know what? I saw me <laughs> in her. I saw my fear. Hundreds of forms of fear. Hundreds of forms of self-delusion. I can remember sitting with my sons not knowing what to say to them. Afraid. I can remember that. And so I watched her that day. I continued to pray for her. And when we, I got uh, four years of sobriety, I invited her to go on a trip with me. She and I had never been in our lives together anywhere, the two of us. We'd always had family. So she wanted to ride up to Washington, D.C. to see the cherry blossoms in spring. It was April. So I wrote her up. And you know what she told me on the way up? She said, son, when I was 10 years old, I burned a biscuit in a wood-burning stove. And, and your grandfather, my father, her father, took a tobacco stick and beat her. And she said, I was scared to death the rest of my time until he died. Died drunk and on shot of morphine, 39 years old. She said, uh, I was scared to death of him. And I said to Mama, I could understand. I said to my mother, I said, Mom, you know, when I was 13 and I broke those eggs and I was going to apologize to her for not minding what she told me to do. Because I hurt her. And you know what she did before I could get those words out? She stopped me and she said, Son, in the past 31 years of my life, not a day has gone by in my life that I haven't thought of that incident with tremendous shame and tremendous guilt. Can you ever forgive me? And you know what I realized that day? That my mother had paid a greater price than I had paid. And I also realized it was time for me to stop being a victim. <laughs> I needed to move on with my life. I was burning the sunlight of the Spirit in that whole relationship. My mother has had open heart surgery. I continue to pray for her every day. It's a very special blessing that I can give to her and to me. And I don't know if she's changed, but the prayer has certainly changed me. And I pray God's blessings on her today. About four years ago, she had open heart surgery. I was able to wash her back and her feet. I was able to give her permission to stop breathing because she was struggling, didn't know if she would be alive, and she really was struggling. And the doctor said, yeah, can you give her permission? I said, sure. You know. And she survived. And I was there through the recovery. And then, you know, um, she would take me to, I would start, I would go down and visit with her. And she'd go to the Garner Senior Citizen Club for lunch every day. She has 232 friends down there. And she gets lunch for 75 cents. And so, and it was one of these deals where, this is my son, David. You need to go around and you meet, this is Mrs. and this is Aunt so-and-so, and this is Mrs. and this is my, and it's wonderful. What a great, what a gift. So I went to see her about a year and a half ago. And I said, Mom, you still going to the Senior Citizen Club? She said, yes. I said, are you making any new friends? Now, my mother, she's about 75, 76. And she starts to blush. She's got this red blush and she starts to giggle like a little 16-year-old teenager. And she turned her head and she said, yes. I said, what's his name? Because my dad, his, her husband had died like 12 years before. And, and she said, his name is Lawrence. I said, well, tell me about Lawrence. Well, she told me about his open heart surgery scar that looked like hers. And she told me about his teeth. And she told me all kinds of things. I did not, I, I was not in for what she was going to tell me, but she told me a lot of things. And she said, David, are you upset with me? And I said, oh, no. I said, Mama, and I really could mean this, folks. Because Keith said to me uh, 10 years ago, if I would keep praying for my mother, she, he said, one day those things that drive you nuts will become cute. And they have. And they have. And she said, David, uh, I'm, I'm lonely. And she said, and I, I, just somebody to go, you know, to go to dinner. And I said, Mother, I will pray for you and Lawrence every day that God's will be done in your life. I really will. And I wish you well. Well, I went on to bed that night. We talked more about Lawrence. And then we, we, I got up the next morning, went over to say goodbye. And she, she got up and she put her head on my shoulder. And she said, thank you so much for accepting Lawrence. She said, you know, I get so lonely. And she said, and it's nice to have someone to go to dinner with. And she said, son, don't worry. He has me in by 930. <laughs> I said, mom, that's great. You know. But you know what? We sat there and we hugged and she cried. You know what? I would have gone to my grave or her grave and I would have missed that moment of intimacy if it had not been for this program. If it had not been for a sponsor and people in these rooms telling me how they were praying for people and how I was helping them. 
If I had not, I would have gone to her grave or mine. Missing all of that. She's a neat gal. She's a neat gal. Tenth step for me is very hard. Uh, I don't want to be honest with myself every day. One or two days a week's enough. You know, it's tough. It's tough. My, my sister called me about eight years ago and she said, I want you to be in my wedding. I said, I'll be glad to. I thought it was supposed to be an usher or something. She said, no, I want you to sing in my wedding. And I said, sister, come on, Gail, get real. She said, no. Uh, I said, but let Donna. Donna's a great singer. I said, let's do a duet. I was trying to buy some support. She said, okay. So it was Lee Greenwood and Barbara Streisand to me or to be or whatever it was. And so she sent us this tape and she sent us this sheet music. And I'm riding around Fayetteville practicing for three months before this wedding. And so I get, I don't know if you know this, but I, I go to the wedding rehearsal and here's my, my sister and husband to be and they're in the back and all the family on the front rows and Donna and I are standing up there and I'm supposed to go to me or something to be, whatever it is. I'm supposed to open this thing with a, with a note and, and this brick comes out. I mean, it's like a big brick and it's a boom. Never heard anything like it in my life. And I looked at my sister and she was going, oh no, like this. And I, and I knew she was thinking, what in the world am I going to do? I can't fire him. He's my brother. And you know what I knew I had to do? Sing it one more time the next day. And I went home, and I don't know about you, but when I could not handle responsibility in my life, you know what I did? I got sick. It was the only thing that would give me permission to not face the reality of the day. And you know what I started to do? I got up, and I was couldn't sleep, and I got up, and I got my big book out, and I was doing my prayer meditation. I was reading this big book, and you know what I started to do? I did just like this. I went, <clears throat> Gail, this is David. I woke up with a real sore throat this morning. I'll be able to sing in your wedding today, but I think Donna can handle both parts. She's very good. And I thought, I, I can't, I can't do that. I went back reading and I went, Gail? And you know what I did? I got up and went to the bathroom. You know what I did in the bathroom? I got sick every time. I, if I was hungover and had to call the office, I'd go to the bathroom and look in the mirror like this and I'd practice a little bit and I'd get on the phone and say, Oh, I'm feeling real sick this morning. Don't come in. And they'd say, Oh, please don't come in. Don't give it to us. And I'd go, Then I'd feel guilty about 15 minutes later. I'd lied about it. But I was in there getting sick. I had my glasses off and I was looking at myself like this. And when I was three months sober, my uh, Keith had me right on my mirror. It's still there, much to Donna's chagrin. But up in the corner, I've written, David, you're wrong. And that's what he asked me to write on the mirror. Never knew why I was there until this day. And I'm standing there and I'm getting sick. Gail, I'm practicing. And I was going to go call her at 6 o'clock in the morning. And I glanced up and saw, David, you're wrong. And you know what I could say? I stepped back and I did a 10-step inventory. I said, thank God I'm wrong right now. Because if I was right right now, I'd have to live this way the rest of my life. You see what I realized? My family was asleep. My mother was in Raleigh. My sister was in Raleigh. No one, no human being in the world was making me afraid but me. It's a very important revelation for me. You see, my sister did not think I was Lee Greenwood. I did. You know what I'm saying? She knew exactly what her brother sounded like. I had the bus. I already had the tour bus going. You know, if I, if I sing good in this wedding, somebody will ask me to be in another wedding. You know, I already had this thing going. Set up a wedding singing business. <laughs> the way it works. See, about step 10 for me is simply is, was I selfish? Was I dishonest? Was I afraid today? Did it keep, did those things keep me from being of service? And so I went to that wedding and you know what I decided I needed to do and I asked God's help. I looked at my sister and sang to her. I didn't care if anybody else was there in that whole building, but I was going to be, she asked me to be of service to her. And my ego and my pride and my desire to start a, a wedding singing business got in the way of that. <laughs> Step 11, people sometimes say, well, what about these thoughts? What have you done? And to me, prayer and meditation, the time to get still. I've been a human doing all my life, folks. I don't know how to be a human being. And in recovery, I'm having to learn how to be a human being. I did not know you could sit at a table and not talk. I didn't know that. I figured if everybody was quiet, that I had to talk because somebody was upset. They didn't like me. So, here we go again. I didn't know. I didn't know. I, uh, in the Al-Anon book uh, on page uh, November 10th, in the uh, ODAT book, there says, I tried meditating on, on the uh, St. Francis prayer, make me a channel about peace, and I'd say, what's a channel, what's peace? And my, my mind, most thoughts were going crazy. Well, I don't know what. You know, Ten minutes later, I was I was angry. And, and it said in the Al-Anon book to focus on one thing, a piece of fruit, a bowl of fruit, and a, or a flower. And I focused on a white rose, and it said for 60 seconds, do that, let no thoughts in. And folks, you know what happened to me when I was two years sober? This knot in my gut went away for the first time, and only at that moment did I know I'd had it all my life. Never knew it was there. I never knew what it felt to be relaxed right here in my this part of my body. And you know what I do now? I try to get back to there.
See, what I'm, I really believe I'm having to learn, and it's true to me it's a learning process, that I can live without thinking that I'll be okay. I don't have to plan four times what's going to happen. I can just, I can show up. In fact, he said, David, realize that when you get there, God's there with you. You don't have to pre-plan. It takes away his ability to help you. That's been helpful to me. Step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. Uh, I thought it was going to be one big deal. You know, but uh, I'm here. <laughs> and you know, it's not that way. It's like this. It's like South American Indians. They capture monkeys in a very unusual way. They capture monkeys by building a large, large clay pot, solid clay, and they put a little cavity on top. They put a long noose neck, and they drop sweet beans down in this cavity. Now, the monkey's hand is just big enough for the cavity is to go down in this noose neck to this cavity, and they grab these beans, and they can't get their fist out. And they'll put these jugs out in the morning in the clearing, and the monkeys will go out and grab these beans, smell them, grab them, and they'll stay there all day holding on to those beans. All they got to do to be free is let go of those beans and pull the hand out. But guess what they'll do? They'll hold on to them all day. The Indians will come back, club them over the head, knock them unconscious, pull their hand out, use the same beans, the same jug to capture more monkeys the next day, put them in a cage, take them to the river and sell them. Do you know what? I am like that monkey. Everything that's happened or not happened, every word that was said or not said, I've held on to it. I don't know why. I don't know why. But you know what I'm learning? That for me, the 12-step process is not something I do one time. There is not, for me, a big spiritual awakening. For me, there was a time I had to admit I was powerless over alcohol, come to believe that a power greater than me was going to restore me to sanity over, over alcohol. Make a decision regarding alcohol to turn my will and life over. Inventory what happened to me. Admit it to my sponsor, to God, and to myself. To look at my part, defects, and make amends for alcohol. To look at my uh, daily, what am I doing? And pray and meditate about it. There was a day I had to let go of my mother. I had to admit I was powerless over I had to come to believe that a power was going to help us. Greater than me. I had to make a decision regarding my mother to turn that relationship over to care of God as understood. I had to make an inventory. I had to look at my defects. I had to make amends to her. I had to, to see what my relationship is daily and I had to pray for her. You see, I think it's letting go one thing at a time. You know when I, I tend to want to let things go? When they get so painful, I can't stand them. I uh, want to thank you for the privilege. I want to end uh, share, sharing with you tonight with this story. When my, my, I got into recovery, my dad had been dead for a few years. And, and so I, my sponsor said, uh, I said, how do I make amends? He said, write a letter, go out to the cemetery, read it to God, go out to the cemetery and read it to your dad. And I did that. He said, now I want you to pray that God put into your life someone that you can care for like you could your dad to make amends. And so there's a guy in Wilmington, Castle Hain, uh, uh, Tom knows. In fact, you spoke down there about three weeks ago, Tom. And I was there last weekend. But his name is Bob W. And Bob W. is about 70 white hair, this big rotund fella, and he talks real slow. And Bob will call me. He'll say, David, this is Bob. I said, hi, but he's in, re- he's in recovery. And I say, hi, Bob, how you doing? He said, I'm doing great. And we'll talk a minute. He said, well, son, I'm going to have to go now. He said, now, remember, I love you, and there's not a thing you can do about it. What wonderful acceptance. So I want to share with you that I really love you. Thank you for this program has given me a life I've never, ever known. It's given us a second chance as a family. And I really want to thank you for the wonderful, wonderful privilege. I love you, and there's not a thing you can do about it. Thank you.